Hello, I'm Peter Ayers, and welcome to this episode of Stages, where I talk to Lynn Collingwood. Lynn Collingwood is known to a legion of fans as Summer Bay busybody Colleen Smart, a role she played for 13 years in the iconic Australian soap opera Home and Away. Playing a character for a length of time is an opportunity rarely afforded to actors. Series television provides ample necessity to guide, craft and inhabit a role. In this episode, Lynn elaborates on the many rewards and challenges that came with maintaining the character of Colleen. Commencing her acting career at the Sydney University Drama Society, her contemporaries and fellow practitioners included Arthur Dignam, Richard Werrett and Jermaine Greer. Her professional acting career commenced later at the age of 35. While residing in the inner west, she discovered the new theatre based in Newtown. She has directed and performed for the company over several decades. She is also a font of knowledge regarding the history of the new theatre and shares much fascinating history of the 87-year-old institution. The new theatre commenced life as the Sydney Workers' Art Club, opening with the slogan, Art is a Weapon. In 2009, Lynn launched Players in the Pub, a regular series of play readings providing audiences and actors with a forum for celebrating theatre and writing. The ensemble presents plays rarely performed and that might provide an engaging curiosity to the theatre historian. It is a life in the arts passionately explored, so it was a delight to enjoy some of the experiences, wisdom and wit of Lynn Collingwood. That's uh, Plays in the Pub? Yeah, yeah. How long has that been going? Well, we started off in 2009. So it's been going for over a decade, yeah. Right. And it started as something for a bunch of actors to do when oh, quiet well, times, or there was a, a, uh, a call from the pub to... No, 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 no. The um, Are we recording now? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, no, Players in the Pub, I started... That was when I was still working in the soap opera, and um, I had an idea about um, trying to give um, some of the people who auditioned for mainstream plays of the new um, the opportunity of maybe just working in front of an audience and I've always loved move play readings because you don't have to learn the lines and um, you've got the backup of the script if you need it and when I and, and by that time I had moved to Glebe and um, I did mention it to a couple of people um, that have got nothing to do with the business. And I said I was thinking about, you know, doing some play readings. And uh, a lot of them said, what is that? And I said, oh, it's, it's actors who, you know, have the script in their hand and they perform it. And they said, oh, that doesn't sound... That, that sounds... Um, they didn't understand what it could be. And I said, with good actors, I said, after a minute, you've forgotten that they've got the scripts and very often they'll use the script as a as a prop, you know. We did one where Paul Bertram actually um, had a... He was playing... Um, um, he was playing a Russian character anyway. He had a hissy fit and he threw the... <laughs> we always remember this now. He threw the script in the air in a fit of peak, you know, and then, of course, all the pages, because he hadn't bound it, and all the pages went everywhere, so then he had to get somebody he was else's script. shot for the rest of the <laughs> well, performance. No, no, he wasn't. It was... Right. Um, it, it, it all worked very well, because the audience love all that, you know, and we just did one. We did a Somerset Morm, and... Um, 
uh, Alan Faulkner um, had two pages stuck together, so he was in the middle of a speech and turned the page and then couldn't find where he was, you know. And then some uh, another actor gave him, and I was playing the maid in that, I was nearly going to run on and sort of give him the script, you know. But the audience likes all that because usually the actors, they don't get too... It's all part of the fun in a way because it's sort of homemade. Anyway, um, I went to... Um, I was thinking about trying to do it the, at the new, but the the new itself is um, absolutely pushed for space for, I mean, time-wise and um, geography-wise and everything. And I went to the Sandringham, because um, that's close by the theatre, and I said, oh, look, I had this idea about, you know, putting on some um, plays. And um, they were so rude, I forgot. I, I thought, well, I won't bother about it, you know. They were very dismissive, and then... Coming back to Glebe, I um, went into the Toxteth and I just ran the idea past them. And uh, and they seemed to be, they said, oh, no, that's great, you know. So um, we've now got, um, we've got more people that we can fit into the space, really. Um, and uh, it's first come best dressed as far as the audience is concerned. So I started off in 2009 and uh, we built up a core of, people and I try to get some new faces in all the time but it's now got a an energy of its own and we I, I really like curiosity plays that have been forgotten and quite a lot of the older um, like John Goresworthy people like that they're really well made very well constructed pieces they tend to be overwritten and I think modern, modern audiences now sort of pick up on things you just need to wink at somebody and it signifies a whole storyline, you know. So I very often prune them to try and get them down to two hours. And, um, yeah, anyway, it's been going. I found a Virginia Woolf piece, the only play that she ever... Well, it's a playlet and it was something a bit like Dickens who wrote little dramas for his family to perform. And um, she did. they did little things with the Bloomsbury people, you know. Anyway, it doesn't make a great deal of sense, but some of it's quite funny and um, Lord Tennyson's in it, you know. Sometimes um, my the, the concern really is that people um, recognise um, allusions to people or the characters, you know, because I have met, I think, Nicky Papadimitri, who does a lot of Hollywood movies for us, um, he said that he'd mentioned Marilyn Monroe to a young actor and she'd never, never heard of her, you know. So <laughs> you make assumptions that people will, you know. <laughs> it's not necessarily what what happens. So forums like that are, are fantastic, I guess, because, as you say, we can hear curiosities and, mm, and mm. Uh, that we've probably read about or heard about mm. for a long time mm. but, um, mm. and give us that, that knowledge of that repertoire. What, what sort of space, performance space is it? Is it just Well, it's not a performance space. No, it's, it's a room. No, it's a room. room right? It's a room with a level floor. So the main thing is that the actors have to project and also not sit down. Um, so it's it's in an upstairs um, room that was it's got progressively um, more cluttered with new owners coming in and they, the bar gets bigger and the performance space that we used to like which, which had the best lighting is now filled up with this enormous bar so we've actually got our own um, and the overhead lights flicker a bit because the room's not used a great deal so Kim Nucky and Peter Talmax have actually um, 
made up um, a, a couple of lighting banks and um, we've even got a remote control to, um, you know, to operate the, the lights. In case the lighting designer <laughs> yeah. performing Yeah, but as I well. do say to the... Um, <laughs> Um, the young, um, the young ones. Um, that I think the the best way of you can go do all the classes you like, but the you know when you're working properly when you get a reaction from an audience, and we do have a very supportive audience, um, and the plays that we do are really um, plays where. The, the, it's the talk that drives the narrative. You know, we can't do anything terribly subtle or visual. Do you need to have the addition of a, a narrator or some narration that you create to fill in the, the stage directions or Well, occasionally, or? yes, occasionally. Um, I'm not, I'm not, I do a printed, just a printed double A4 sheet with the... I concentrate on the writer. Um, so um, one page is the uh, biography and then um, overleaf. Um, I always try and put in something if it was ever done in Australia, if there's ever the any connection, you know. Um, and then um, so the people then, you know, it'll sort of say Act 1, Act 2, the setting and all that sort of stuff. But normally um, that, that I do say or the, the stage directions are read. I've got this, I'm doing Bleak House next a uh, couple of weeks away, and somebody gets killed during the, the and I'm going to make that just before interval. And uh, of course, it says there's a blinding flash and a gunshot. So um, I asked a friend to help me with, I'm not all that good with the technical stuff, so I've asked somebody to help me with the sound. And earlier on, Lady Deadlock is with her gun and in the, um, we wanted to have the sound of the pistol being cocked, you know, but of course it's not going to read because it's very quick, you know. So I'm thinking that with this, Alan Faulkner's playing the one that gets killed um, and there's supposed to be the gunshot and the blinding flash, but I very often read the stage directions with a lot of stuff, you know, like pizzazz, you know, and... Um, uh, with this, uh, I'm thinking about what can we bring in as the interval music, and I've actually got the psycho. <laughs> <You know? laughs> that, um, Herman yeah. score. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which everybody will recognise as a, a totally, it's nothing to do with 1853, you know, when the book was written. But, but um, it's atmospheric. <laughs> well, it's atmospheric, and I thought <laughs> if I delay that, because I think I can get Alan to sort of fall around dying for a while and milk the moment, and then we can bring the music, we can bring the psycho music up behind it, you know. So, but the audience all, um, they all come along for the ride. So how do Sydney audiences um, find players in the pub? At which pub is it at? Well, it's at the Toxteth. In Glebe. In Glebe. Uh, we started off there and then there's been so many different owners and uh, and sometimes the room's been closed. So we actually, since 2009, we started off in the Toxteth there a few years. Then we couldn't have that anymore. And uh, so then we went down to the Harold Park Hotel. Um, then something happened there. Oh, that's right. Then we were told about the Roxbury, which is at Forest Lodge, which is near Glebe Town Hall. And it had a little room 
um, with a little stage because they had done, um, they used to do a bit of musical stuff there. And it was an ideal room. The The roof used to leak and there was a bucket we had to put under it if it <laughs> rained, you know. <laughs> so you'd hear, the, it was like the pinter sound of the water hitting the bucket, you know. Um, uh, but And we could fit, I think, 70 or so people in, in there and uh, they could have a meal beforehand. But the problem with the pub was that it, it had all been... So many pubs now have been modernised and they're absolutely without any atmosphere and they break up all those... The, the smaller spaces go. I think in the old days there used to be the, you know, the ladies' lounge and all those discreet places where people could do different activities, you know, they didn't all have to be sort of swilling at the bar. And um, and the Roxbury was like that. It was very uninviting for the general public to just sort of wander in and have a drink during the day. So um, I could feel that the, the writing was on the wall there and it's been um, closed now for a few years. Then we went to the Friend in Hand anyway. Now we're back at the Toxter. You talk so. about Ladies' Lounge. Remember a film called Caddy with Helen Morrison? Oh, yeah, and, I did. A, I was an extra in that. Oh, were you? <laughs> and I remember a scene in the Ladies' Lounge where a fight broke out. Yeah. I think Jan Adele was, yeah. was leading the blue. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. No, I did, um, yeah, I did... Um, I did some extra... I started off doing extra work, you know. I was quite happy to get any sort of money for anything. And um, and I, I can remember we shot um, quite a bit uh, in... Um, I think that we were lining up to um, get food parcels or something and it, quite a bit was... You had to be... I mean, period films are very hard. It was set to, during the Depression, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. But... Um, and we were all under those um, sandstone arches at uh, Railway... Um, Railway Square, Square yeah, yeah. Um, and of course you've got to, and, and there was I don't know whether it was that film but I remember also that um, there was a we were supposed to be doing something on uh, it was supposed to be a Sunday and uh, we we were filming against a sandstone wall I mean we've got a few sandstone walls here in Glebe but of course you've got to be careful that you don't have a, not a, even a modern vehicle but the, the shots have got to be... I mean, now now you can sort of fiddle around with it and, and get rid of things you don't want, you know, but finding location. But the main problem then was the noise um, to uh, actually get the dialogue out before another plane went over or another truck went by, you know. Yeah. And, of course, it, of course, it was supposed to be a Sunday in the past. I mean, the only sound you would have heard would be church bells. Mm. So your acting work, did that start as an extra before you...? Uh, well, I started with stage um, work. I started at Sydney Uni. I joined Suds and I joined totally by by accident. I can't remember... Because um, uh, Arthur Dignam, I know, he joined and it was because he missed the bus and he saw a notice somewhere saying people wanted to audition for something and he thought, oh, I'll have a... I'll just sort of pop in there and sort of see what happens. So I was in... Um, John Tasker directed Lucifer and the Lord and uh, I was in that in the crowd scene with Richard Werrett and all of those people. But I knew Richard because we did anthropology together, you know. Uh, and, a subject at uni. Yeah, yeah. a subject at uni. Right. And... Um, uh, we what we used to play in Wallace Theatre, which is really a lecture theatre. It's not 
glamorous or anything. And I started there, um, uh, I had no ambition at all and I'm not even sure why I, um, I got into it because I had um, background at school. I'd never been any of the school plays or anything like that. But um, I... Did um, you go to the theatre as a girl? uh, We used to go to um, the musicals and all of that sort of stuff, but um, I'd never gone to the new theatre before I joined it, you know, and I only joined the new theatre because I lived close by. And I thought, well, I'd just like to keep my hand in doing something rather than waiting for the phone to ring, you know. So I started off at, um, yeah, I started off at Sydney Uni and I joined Suds and then we had a, um, there was a director called Pamela Trethown who was married to the Professor of Psychiatry and she did um, quite a number of productions and one that I got involved in was The Birthday Party by Pinter and she was the person I think that taught me quite a lot even though it was unconscious, well I wasn't aware that I was being taught but I'd done a play before with her and Bob Ellis was in it and Bob was in the birthday party as well. Um, anyway, we did this unwee and I played the maid and uh, I can remember I got a laugh and then I milked it and got all these laughs and I came off thinking, oh gosh, haven't I been, haven't I been, haven't I been wonderful? <laughs> And Pam came up and she said, if you ever do that again, I will kill you. And I said, do what? And she said, you overact, you know, you're milking it. She said, the balance is all wrong. That makes that character far too... It, it's kind of wrong for the whole play, you know. So... Um, that's, that's the easy mistake of the novice, isn't it? If you, if you know... Don't have any knowledge really about style, how to play style. Oh well, or it's, yeah, and you're I think seduced by the laughter. Yeah, yeah, well, that's right, and it's a selfishness too, you know. And uh, I mean, the thing was that one could do because she used me quite a lot. Um, we we used to do musical things, you know, Victoriana, and then of course you could shine because you had your number, you know. So I had uh, I did quite a lot of Victorianas with her, when, and then you can be milking it and that because you're the sole performer. I love music hall. I wish it'd make a comeback. Yes, yes. Well, I did a couple of years ago. Um, uh, I, I tried it at, um, at Newington because one of the... Um, he's now organising the, um, the New Theatre Properties. I'm on the, the board of that. Um, and he'd been, he had connections with Newington, he taught there, and they had the nice chapel, and I did um, a Christmas carol there one year, um, which was something that I'd actually, um, I'd done a script for some time before, and then the next year I did Victoriana, because it's also a, it's a very social thing, we had round tables and food and drink, and of course the audience sings along with the chorus and all of that sort of stuff. Bull and Bush. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, anyway, so um, yeah, I did a lot of Victorianas with Pam, but I think the, the thing that was terrific was when we did the birthday party. And the other thing, apart from um, not, um, not pulling focus in the wrong way, uh, I can remember when she brought this script, because Harold Pinter, this is 1960, uh, was um, 61 we put it on uh, he was a new writer 
And I remember we looked at the script and Pam said, I don't know what it means, but I think I know how, to pl how it should be played. And she was quite modest. I thought I'd like, in retrospect, thinking about her directing style, she wasn't prescriptive and dominating and bossy and whatever, but she, I think, could always get to the style quite quickly. And I did see um, The Caretaker done in a place in Redfern just a couple of years ago. Nikki Papadimitriou played um, Davies. And I thought, this is the pure pinter because the sound of the water hitting the bucket, all of that punctuation, because it kind of reads, it's almost musically organised, I think, the way the rhythms of it and the pauses. Yeah. You can only afford the pause when you've picked up some momentum between the pauses, all that sort of that's stuff. That's essential you know? to honour those pauses also. Well, that's I mean, right, he, he yeah. He dictates that in his script, doesn't he? Yes, yeah. he does. Yeah. But um, we won the... We, we did... I went to a couple of intervarsity festivals and um, in 61 we won it. Um, and Arthur Dignam was, was the, the lead, you know, Stanley. Um, and in those days, he could remember his lines, as could I. <laughs> um, and we went to Hobart and we uh, we played in the Theatre Royal. You know, I mean, that was just terrific. So she was somebody that I really learned a lot from, I think. Right. Mm. You started life as a teacher, though, didn't you? Is that why you're at uni? Well, yes, I just drifted. I mean, I'm just a drifter, I think. I've, uh, I, I finished uni... I didn't go there on a... Um, we all had Commonwealth scholarships. I didn't go there on a teacher's college scholarship. And so I taught for a year, and it's funny that I taught in a in a school where Jermaine Greer had just been the last um, teacher. And the kid yeah, there's some mighty contemporaries you're working with. Yeah. Oh, well, Jermaine yeah. was involved in quite a lot of the theatre that we did as well, and right. she did a Victoriana. And uh, there's a song called Won't You Bite My Pretty Flowers, which is, a, you know, the sort of Pygmalion-type flower seller. And Pam used to get people to play really straight, you know, according to, you know, what the song was. And some of those songs were truthfully about poverty and need and all of that sort of stuff. And, of course, Jermaine did it, and I think this was in the staff club at Sydney Uni, and she sang Won't You Buy My Shitty Flowers. And I said to her, I, kind of, I really liked her... We, we weren't exactly intimidated by her. The men were intimidated by her because she couldn't resist being sharp, you know. But she was very supportive of women. And anyway, I said, look, I think that's dreadful the way you did it. I think it's absolutely wrong, you know. And she said, oh, yeah, you're probably right, you know. But she used to, um, you know, paint sets there and everything. And, you know, it was all good. Yeah, it was good fun. She was good. But this school that I was at, one of the, the kids said, oh, you're so boring. You know, we had this terrific teacher, you know, last year, and she told us about all the, um, you know, sewage systems and all this sort of stuff. I mean, I was only 20, you know. I was barely uh, much older than the senior the kids, the yeah. senior kids, you know. So I did that, yeah, and then I, I dropped... I, I taught for a bit, and then I realised that I had no... I had no... the. I was popular with the kids, I think, you know, but I didn't really have any discipline. And then I worked in, I worked in children's playgrounds, you know, as a, doing bits of drama and all sorts of things with them. And um, did you enjoy teaching? 
Well, I think I, I, I went back to it later and went, I was much more confident when I came back after a break doing all sorts of other things. And I think that I realised that, you know, the most important thing is you've got to be absolutely well prepared and you can't be uh, defensive. I think it's also better to say if you don't really know something that you don't, you say, you admit it, you know, rather than being Dig nervous about yeah 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 <laughs> but yeah so I enjoyed that um I've done all these other things I've worked when I started I got an agent um I did a um Denny Lawrence directed it and uh, we did a uh, piece called um Bunch of Rat Bags which had some songs in it I really can't sing very well but um Anne Robinson was um uh, choreographing uh, that and she said oh you should get an agent you know and I'd never thought about it so I went to June Riley who did a lot of ads and uh, I did masses and masses of commercials you know nearly always playing the mum in the apron you know serving stuff up but I did ads for irons and um, I did an ad for the Catholic Church I can't remember what that was about but <laughs> I did a lot of food ads I did feed the man meat which was a nice series and that was because uh, I grew up in the eastern suburbs and the butcher shop they used was in Rose Bay actually and I recognized the tiles and I thought why would I recognize that and I think it was probably because when I was about four or something I used to walk past the butcher shop and you saw you're the that tiles at your eye level yeah yeah so so how old were you when you went professional as an actor oh 30 35 right yeah, okay, so you're a bit yeah. Older, yeah yeah I was older yeah and I'd done all um I'd done things in I did uh uh after um because we did the birthday party I was already teaching by the time we did the birthday party and then there were some graduate um uh productions you know Alan Kendall who started play school he directed quite a few things and Richard Bradshaw was in something that I did um, he's a terrific puppeteer um, so um, there was a group that sort of continued on um, doing other productions there was the Gamma Girton Society that I was involved with and we did a couple of things in the um, uh, we did the Crucible um, in the Cell Block Theatre and Hamlet um, and that was when I was working daytime doing other things, you know. Mm. One of your first television I, I read is number 96. That's oh, that was right. I was iconic. <laughs> well, I was a, again, so, I was an extra in that, you right. know. I can't even remember. I think that was when, I think Jaws had just come out and they had to, they had to get rid of a lot of, because every now and then they've got to get rid of characters, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not sure that they were, there was something that, I don't remember much about that except somebody being carried out on a stretcher. I think that um, maybe we were in a cafe or something where there'd been an explosion or something, you know. Anyway, they, it's always a challenge to write people out, you know. Tell me about Colleen Smart. Oh, right, well... <laughs> yeah, the, the iconic <laughs> character that you played for many years, uh, I think about 13 years in Home and Away. Yeah, well, I did, yeah, but I've, I was first in it in um, quite near the beginning. I did, a, I did a few blocks, but that was basically to be the mother of... Uh, there was a character called Lance, who was my son, 
but I was brought in. He'd been established. He was there right from the beginning. And he had a dumb friend called Martin, so they were a couple of sort of yobbo boys, you know. So I came in as their mother. And then um, I was in a few blocks. Uh, and then I... You never get... Um, unless you're actually killed off, which doesn't even mean the end of a character because sometimes they come back. Yeah, <laughs> so. They were always um, cranky that they got rid of Nicole Dixon's character, you know, because... You know, Bobby, the, was it? Bobby. Yeah. She was so popular, you know. So anyway, so then... I, I And I remember auditioning for the part and I thought, I've just got to be bold and over the top you know you can always pull it back and uh, so I think I, I, I the audition I played it quite full-on and kind of a bit stupid you know um, and of course Cornelia Francis was in it you know so we worked together quite a bit and I used to love the feeling that there was chalk and cheese and because she had that steely look you know and he'd be this sort of idiot with her. Um, well, Colleen was the, the busybody, wasn't she? Well, she was the busybody that knew everybody's business. And sometimes she had to... I remember doing it with two characters. Uh, this was after I came back for the, for the long stint. Um, and uh, one of them... I had to recap for this new character everything that had gone on you know in the bay and who did what and all of that so the busybodies it's a stock character of soap we see them pop oh, up yeah, a lot yeah, yeah. but also they're they have used a as a device yeah, oh, yeah. to An absolute give function. that information yes and I think the humour you know and I do think that um, I I could always feel when it was working because I got quite friendly with a lot of the crew and um and I, some of them, I, I sometimes go over there now and sort of sort of just catch up a bit, you know. And Willie used to... Um, the, the thing too, I think it's much easier when you're playing a regular character, you've got confidence, you know how the thing operates and all of that. And sometimes I'd be, do, I'd be doing a scene and just you have this sort of third eye and you'd feel this because Willie would just do that and that meant you had to lean into shot, you know. This and you is get, the, uh, one of the directors? Or, no, no, he'd be the cameraman. Right, right. And he'd, and, but I was aware of where the cameras were um, and he'd, he'd do that. But during rehearsal, very often, I could hear the cameraman laughing and that was when I knew it was working, that you were sort of hitting the mark, you know. Did you get much rehearsal for...? Uh, no, um, and it's funny because... You don't, well, in my experience, I still see a lot of the people that I was at uni with. I mean, a lot of, we're going to funerals, you know, Andrew McLennan has just died. Um, and um, you form a, I think it's because you're in the dressing, you're in the communal dressing room, because when you're in television, you have your own dressing room or you share with somebody. And that's not the same as being in the, the big space and the and the and the rehearsal process taking so long that you get to know people well over that period of time whereas with this we'd have a rehearsal just sitting around on a friday um i mean sometimes it'd be rehearse record and you'd just go on and what i my favorite director was jeffrey nottage and it's a funny thing because if i'd been 
not not a not a permanent person but had come in as a guest i think i would have been very nervous about it but jeffrey would be just before we shot the scene he'd say well let's have another look at the script and he'd say no he said i don't think that should be your line he said lynn you take her line and you take so it was very fresh and he didn't believe and neither do i in more than you know i think if you have three takes you know that's about it because the the energy goes and it becomes a little bit kind of plodding and you're going to shoot you're shooting uh, quite a few hours of television every week aren't you Oh, yes, two and a half hours of television. It's very speedy. You don't have time to muck around. Um, uh, And sometimes you'd have a very busy day. You might have, you know, ten scenes in a row or something. You've got Hayley and you've just got to remember to run and change, you know, Um, and then get back. And then sometimes they'd be making you up. Uh, you know, on the set rather than, you know, in the makeup room. Did you get the scripts mm. long before Oh, shooting? a few Did weeks you? before, so you had, so you had time. time. Learn, yeah. Well, you had time to prioritise the things you needed to kind of work on. And it's funny because um, the other thing that I found after a while was that um, I was given a lot of liberty with the scripts, you know, and I used to ask people, because I started doing the malapropisms, and... Um, I'd ask people to write down, malap- you know, friends of mine just to write down the malapropisms. Yes. And you were very much a restoration character. Oh, absolutely, <laughs> yes, except for the outfit, you know. Yes. The other thing that was that they went along with, I said, I really want to be an arbiter of taste, but I want to dress, I always want to dress with everything clashing if possible, you know. So the look of it was um, uh, to be there to be a, a kind of peculiarity about her, you know, big note in herself and all of that sort of stuff and the way she actually did look and the language um, that she'd be sailing along, not to, not aware at all of all of this, you know, so there'd always be, you know, the leopard never changes its stripes and all of this sort of stuff, you know. Mm. But I had some... My sister actually has got a friend who's who really is a Mrs Malaprop. And every time you're with her, you you can hear the word coming up and you know that it's going to be... You're waiting for her to use the wrong word, you know. Yeah. I imagine um, playing a character for such a length of time presents its particular challenges and rewards. Did you enjoy the opportunity to play a character for that length of time? Oh, yes, I, yes, I did. Um, the, the thing was that near the end, um, I was just getting bored with the... Um, I had some very... Some of the material... I can remember some of the stuff. I mean, a lot of it I've actually forgotten um, what, it, what it was, uh, what, you know, what the scenes were about. But I remember this, uh, there were some scenes where, uh, you know, there was some very early on, there was a... Um, con man who tried to sell me a block of swamp in Queensland you know I liked all that stuff and there'd be a freshness about it but I did find that um I think I've done this scene before only the names are different you know yeah yeah. you're given um a dramatic storyline I think too with your gambling addiction yeah but I wanted that to go on I mean I suggested that um, because I was also aware that uh, that there were real people in the community that sort of related to my character in a way. But then they dispensed with that in a minute. And then I said I wanted to 
Um, I thought that, you know, Colleen could run a film festival. Well, that ended up just being an excuse for getting two of the young kids to kiss, right. you know. <laughs> there was a lot of that sort of... Um, how, yeah. did, how did mm. Colleen exit the series? Well, I wanted her to be a murderer. <laughs> and I said... I said <laughs> That's I, very number 96. Well, well I, I wanted her to... Because I, you know, knew about the Thalian murders... And uh, I said, you know, I want her, the last image to be her in the back of a paddy wagon, you know, being taken away. And I said I could poison people in the, in the, in the uh, cafe, you know. Get rid of a few characters. Yeah, get rid of yeah. it because the tattooed boys, you know, I wanted to get rid of them. Anyway, um, and they said, oh, no, you can't. I said, well, don't give me something dumb like, you know, getting me to win the lot- lottery, which is, of course, what they did, you know. So I'm still in America. Las Vegas, I believe. Yeah, yeah, I believe, yes. <laughs> you might return. Well, I don't know. Are there, are there um, thoughts of that or would you would you like to do that? Or? Uh, I don't want to learn lines. And, yeah, that's true. Uh, you know, and the other thing I maybe was... Maybe Colleen could do rehearsed readings in a pub. Well, maybe I could, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, there was something else I was going to say about... Um, no, it's, it's absolutely gone now, but it was something to do with the, um, the scripts... Anyway, it doesn't matter. It'll come back in a minute. Yeah, yeah. Mm, mm. The New Theatre is a, a company that you've uh, worked with many, many times. Yeah, I joined in 1980 and um, I... Because um, I was living close by. Right. And, the uh, News in Newtown in Sydney. Yes, yeah. yes. Well, it is now. Um, it's been there since 1973 in the current uh, premises which was a, a, an old um, picture tube factory that was um, uh, worked on by the uh, members of the theatre, basically, with the help of quite a lot of trade unionists who put in their time, you know, plumbers and, I mean, the things that the ordinary people couldn't do. We see a lot of those companies mm. in Sydney, like Belvoir and the Ensemble yeah. and, and yeah, well, Griffin, Belvoir, which started by the actors who yeah. were there. Yeah, and they are converted from something else. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Um, how did you, did you just answer an audition to, to go along or you, you had an itch to scratch with your performance? And No, um, I, I'd actually done a Victoriana at the University of New South Wales and somebody had come. Uh, he was in the audience and he saw it. And, um, and then I knew that he was actually directing something. It turned out to be a pretty pathetic review that I did. Um, but I had the confidence because he'd seen me do... I think that's the best way of auditioning people in a way is to is to observe, yeah. you know, to see them in action. Because mm. people audition terribly, don't they, some, some Oh, actors. they do yeah. sometimes, you know. Really yeah, mm. yeah, that's right. And it's a it's such a phony... Um, si- it's a phony situation. There's a, a girl who is living in this um, complex who's... Um, she's wanting to get into acting. She's actually been training at the con as a singer, as an opera singer. And uh, I suggested that she audition for... um, There's a moved reading of the removalists. And she came over here last week and uh, I just... I went through this block with her and, um, and just gave her a few tips about... Particularly when you've got a block of text, you've got to break it up somehow... And um, and work out, you know, where 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 some thought finishes and another begins, that sort of stuff. And I did suggest that she 
have an eye line to an imaginary character. Um, it's a bit like the Christian Brothers, you know, where that's just about the, the chair becomes the kid in the room, you know. Um, but she was she was very nervous just coming here and just sort of sitting in front, standing in front of me. And I do know that feeling. Um, and I find, I've always found too that the more... Um, uh, the more you don't care whether you get it or not, the, the jobs that you get, and I think it's a that's a relax, um, a it's relaxation a that, that you bring. Well, you bring that. the yeah, you bring it, and then I did say to her that if she didn't get this, I mean, very often too, people you're wrong for something, but people keep you in mind. Something else will come up, and they'll think, oh, that somebody's got that what we need for this part, you know. Mm. Yeah, so I yeah I joined then. And is, then, would, how would you define the new? Is it an amateur company? Because a lot of professionals work there as well. Well, it's a non-paid um, company, um, and it's always had that tradition. It wouldn't afford to be able uh, to keep on going. I don't if think it had, it had to pay, to pay people. Salaries, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. No, a lot of actors have started off there. Um, I, I could go through hundreds of them because <laughs> they've all worked there at some stage. Yeah. Well, I mean. Is it all right if I just mention a couple? I mean, I started going through. I did. Um, I, I talked to the students at Sydney University Performance Studies last year, and I had um, two presentations. I sort of ran out of time for the second one, but I'd done a, um, a, 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 a an A to Z of people who'd worked there, you know, and. Um, I'd started off with Julian Assange's stepmother who played Mother Courage uh, in um, 1966, I think it was. And I finished up with Julia Zamiro, who did um, one show, uh, a Stephen Sewell play in the 90s. And in between, I had all these hundreds of other people. You well, know? that's an A to Z. <laughs> that's an A to Z, yeah. Well, how yeah. old's the new? Well, it started in 1932. Right. And that was a product of the depression, and it was—it's um, now a very swanky hotel at 36 Pitt Street. But in 1932, that was the seedy, very seedy end of town, full of dustbins, full of old prawns and stuff. You know, prawns were cheap then; oysters <laughs> were dead cheap. Oh, you know? they were the days. And drunks, <laughs> and it uh, was—it was um, a club. And uh, there were um, there was a literature section, a drama section, a music section that didn't last very long, um, an art section uh, that um, flourished. There were quite a lot of um, visual artists who couldn't get much work then, and they kept their hand in. And it was somewhere for people to drop in and have a cup of tea and all of that sort of stuff. They, so. they open with the slogan, art is a weapon. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, a lot of what they did was was really political stuff and some of it, I think, was, um, you know, I don't know. We've got, a, Mitchell Library has all our archives such as they exist. We've got hundreds of boxes there. I process the, the archives. But a lot of the stuff, because Russia then was the big... Uh, nobody really knew much about what was going on in Russia, but it was 
promoted as a sort of promised land and a, a place for the working man to flourish and all of that sort of stuff. And they did quite a lot of Russian plays. They got quite a lot of material from Unity Theatre in London. Um, and um, I think some of them must have been really dead boring, some of these plays. And, of course, they started... Some of them didn't finish till after midnight because I've been looking at the at the minutes of meetings and the records and all of that sort of stuff, you know. Some of the early reviews, you know, so that people then had to trape home on the tram... I suppose they're still running after midnight. In those days. Eight o'clock start, I guess. So you're seeing well, that's plays right. of four hours length. Yes, yeah. that's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I guess that's why Asia became obsessed with the, the company as a, oh, a hive a communist, for communists. Yeah, yeah, and there were a lot of communists. And I've got... Um, one of the things I was going to try and do was to follow up because I I'd, I'd put together a website on the theater's history I don't know whether you know that yeah 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 and uh that was something I did after I'd finished um home and away I thought well if I don't do it because uh, I sort of straddle some uh, you know between the older and the younger generation and I thought if I don't do it nobody'll do it so the asio business was um something that I was such a so much aware of and quite a lot of members have now got their ASIO files but of course some of them are redacted so much that there's not not very much information left um, but they um, it, it was a serious business because um, some people um, David Millis for instance who's recently died and he was a stalwart of the theatre he joined in 1953 I think it was and only died last year or so but um, he um, he worked for the education department and a lot of people who were in um, the public um, public service just found that they, they didn't get jobs and a lot of the programs you'll find from the 50s, um, Les Tanner, the political cartoonist, worked there for a long time but he started calling himself, I think it was Michael King. People used pseudonyms and particularly the... Um, the actors who were working in radio drama, because radio drama was a source of, um, of regular income for a lot of people, and they used pseudonyms. Um, and uh, I've got quite a lot of the reports, the ASIO agent. I mean, the thing that I was interested in was who were these agents, because they'd obviously joined the theatre as members. And uh, we've got the names of a couple of them, and there's been other suggestions. There was a fellow that wrote paperback novels that they thought was... Um, I think David thought that he might be an, a, a mole, uh, but I didn't know how he could have the time because he was contracted to write 400 books a year or something. And surely the moles, hopefully, would have been bad actors. Oh, well, a lot of them were not... Yeah, well, I mean, I don't know what the standard of a lot of the ordinary actors was, but um, some of them weren't... I mean, my suspicion really was there was a theatre photographer who was there for a long time, and he did a couple of workshops and stuff, but he didn't. He wasn't a mainstream actor. But a lot of the other people just joined as members um, because a lot of people didn't necessarily go there to act. They went there to build sets and just have as i said it was a, it was more of a it was as much a club as it was a an acting institution mm -hmm. what was the the new theater movement 
Well, I think that started in America um, uh, and then scripts, I think, started coming from there. I think you might have to forgive me on that because yeah, my yeah. mind's just gone a bit. Because I'm assuming about that's that. where the, the new got its got its name. Got its name, yeah. Um, well, see, originally it was called the Workers Art Club, yeah. And then um, the name was changed. I think about 1936 or something. Um, the, um, the, the first full scale production in '33, a, a play called The Ragged Trousered Philanthropists. Mm. Um, I'm just reading my my reading also. The theatre helped galvanise opposition to Nazism in the 30s. Oh, yeah, yeah. Mm. And led ultimately successful fight against stage censorship from the 40s to the 60s, culminating in the now legendary staging of the band America Hurrah in 1968. Yes, um, uh, America Hurrah... John Hargraves was in America Hurrah and Maggie Kirkpatrick and... uh, you know, so they're kind of well, well-known, well-known names. Um, America Hurrah created a furor um, because John Tasker, who was the one that I first met at Sydney Uni, who directed Lucifer and Lord, directed um, directed that. And I think that um, the, the the stink about America Hurrah arose out of a grandmother who took her. She shouldn't have ever taken him to it took her grandson to see it and then objected to, you know, what was in it. Because it really was a, um, it it was really an excoriating um, attack on a lot of uh, the American uh, things that were uh, consumerism and all of this stuff in in America. Um, And uh, of course, the next year, I think it was Hair came out. And so by that stage, the the kind of uh, I think America Hurrah brought so many passionate people for um, freedom um, into you know prominence and created such a stink it sort of then and I think Donald Chip was the minister too and he I think was um, you know quite wise about getting rid of a lot of the censorship laws because also the films that came in were all cut to ribbons particularly european films you know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, one of australia's first jukebox musicals reedy river has had mm. quite a few yeah at the yeah, yeah yeah well it um it the folk the folk um uh, movement um really got going i think with that because the the bushwhackers um people rediscovered old um uh, folk song, Australian folk songs that had been forgotten and um, Reedy River was so popular I think it was 1953 that it first came out um, and it was always a um, a money spinner and I mean it, it, it outlasted its life, I mean it'd be interesting in a way probably to do it again now with maybe different staging altogether um, but it's got some terrific sing-along songs, I mean the the plot itself just is an excuse to string along a whole lot of songs, you know. But, but Shearer Strike. Yeah. yeah. But the people that... Um, uh, I've forgotten when the last production was. I mean, the, the production's also varied in um, skills and, you know, whatever. But um, it used to be said that whenever Reedy River came along, they knew the theatre was broke. And I think it stopped being the solution to... 
everybody's problems at some point you know that it didn't it didn't generate the income mm. um, the repertoire uh, presented by the new has often garnered um, first productions of plays and I was fascinated to, to read that they performed the very first production of the crucible that's right in Australia mm, mm. well that was 1958 and that was when they were actually working in dreadful circumstances because they'd left um, they uh, 36 Pitt Street they left um, and uh, they um, they went then to St um, Philip's Lane at, uh, in Darlinghurst, but in the interim, there was a period where they couldn't find anywhere to perform. And so they used the, because they had a strong connection with the Waterside Workers' Union, they uh, used the Waterside Workers' Hall. But the Waterside Workers' Hall was being used during the week and uh, they had to, um, strike everything at the end of every um, weekend production. Everything had to be stored. Um, now, I read quite a bit of the, some of the minutes leading up to the production of The Crucible, and one of the um, main members on the committee said that, um, uh, that it was so much against it being staged because he said it's it's such a local, it's about local issues, it's got nothing to do with anything else, which of course I used to mark HSC papers and of course you'd, when they did the crucible, they'd always start off with McCarthyism, which has really got nothing to do with the play, um, but they'd frame it in and give, you know, start off with the historical framework for putting it in the larger setting. But the, um, the, the and I don't think that the director was, um, uh, particularly canny uh, and 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 I'd met her in um, later life um, and she used to ring up occasionally and uh, you could never hang up on her and uh, so she directed but I think probably despite her because she used to keep people back for hours and hours and hours rehearsing beyond the time that anything was really happening or you know taking shape um, but it, um, it, yeah, so, and, and of course that was the time when no other theatre would, would touch it because of its association with, you know, um, was seen as, as a communist piece. Yeah. Yes, and now it's gone into the, it's a bit like uh, the removalists. I was in teaching in a private school. We didn't have the removalists as a text, but I thought it was a very strong play and I took it into the class and I think we read some bits out of it. And I felt a bit guilty about it, you know, because it's seen, you know, it's, I mean, it's all domestic violence and, and violence everywhere. Um, and of course, now it's a, you know, it's a text. It's one of the go-to school texts text. yeah, of all time, yeah. yeah. Mm, mm. Who are some of the personalities who have loomed large over the, the theatre's history? I mean, I, I've worked there four times and, mm, and loved it. Mm. And we've rehearsed in the Jean Blue room. Well, Jean, Jean Blue, yeah, Jean Blue was a... Um, she was an actor. She was also the secretary for a long time. And um, she joined, I think, right near the beginning. Um, I think it might have been about 1935 or something that she she acted in a lot of plays there. And she was actually in quite a lot of the... Um, there was a bit of a flourishing film industry here in the 50s. And she was in... Um, the Overlanders and a few films like that. She had sort of featured roles. Uh, and she left the theatre 
I can't remember when she died, but she left the theatre some money and it was used to um, install some new toilets and that and then to um, uh, convert the area above the stage into a... Um, it had already been a rehearsal... I mean, it was the only rehearsal space they had, but to spring the floor and to put in mirrors and all sorts of stuff. So uh, she was a beneficiary, which is why the theatre's named after her, but she was also a long, long-term supporter of the theatre, right. an actor there. And Miriam Hampson was the one that um, I think she took over in as secretary in 19... Uh, I think in the 50s. And she um, she retired in 1992 or something. Um, but she, um, she was the driving force... Uh, to keep the place going. I mean, it was her life, the theatre. And she wasn't an actor. She was just an administrator. And she was very me. I was a bit... Everybody's a bit scared of her. She was quite fierce. Um, but she was fierce for the right reasons because of, you know, keeping the place going. And I think without her it would, would have folded because she... Uh, I've looked at a lot of her correspondence and that, and she was obviously there from morning till night every day, and she'd send out begging letters and all of that and uh, carry on about people having to turn the lights off. She's very aware of you had to live on an oily rag. Yeah. Mm. As uh, we all do in the arts, don't we? Oh, yes, it's absolutely. Just, I mean, the other thing about being in the soap opera was that it uh, it's so secure to have a have a cheque coming in, you know, to be paid. Um, I mean, the other thing, even sort of silly things like um, when I left, um, I, for a while, um, let my hair grow. <laughs> and then I, I sort of put it, started, you know, kept on putting colour in it and everything. Um, and then I found how expensive it was to actually go to a hairdresser because for 13 years... Every week. Oh, the show would do it for you. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That came with it, you know, and they'd colour it and, you know, they'd try sometimes different colours and all of that. And so what I loved on the Friday, if you if you didn't have any scenes, then the Friday was just rehearsal and then go to uh, the makeup room and sort of, you know, have the, co- uh, the foils in your hair and... Uh, lie back in the basin and all of that sort of stuff, you know, and then go home. You know, you obviously had to learn the lines for the next week, you know, but um, I got a real shock when I had to go to a hairdresser and, and pay for it. <laughs> <laughs> Lynn, what have you loved about, loved most about a, a, a life as a performer and, and working in the theatre? Well, I like working on material that's good. Um, and uh, I like being part of a team when you feel everything's working and the, 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 the play itself, well, particularly the play, is, um, is fulfilling the vision of the author. Um, one of the things... Um, I did the season at Sarsaparilla at the New and I just read the lines and I thought, 
I know how to play these lines, you know. And uh, it was an absolute sellout. And you could just feel at the end of it that no, every, every actor in it was right for the part and the, the piece absolutely worked, you know. So, and the friendships that you make in the theatre, you know, I think when you trust, you've got to trust each other, much more than in television, where you've got the security blanket of you can do another take, provided it's not number 64 or something, you know, um, that, that. But the other thing that I was sort of thinking about, because I, with the television, um, I used to get a lot of fan mail, you know, and most of it was, you know, what's your favourite colour sort of thing, you know, and keep up the good work. They'd always tell you to keep up the good work, you know. I don't think they had any idea, you know. And I hate... I mean, one of the things about the the television was that you had no private life. And, uh, you know, I'd be somewhere with people in, you know, in a, in a restaurant or something, and somebody would come and sit at your table because they assume... It's not like stage, and I, I think it's probably because you're in the, their lounge room, but they assume that you are like the character. I mean, I was quite scientific about my character and looking at the script and thinking I can get a joke in here, that sort of thing. But people assume that you are like the character. And with me, that meant that I was touchy-feely and they always had to touch you and that I'd be friendly and nice and silly, you know, and most of the time they used to just piss me off, you know. Yeah. Um, but the, the, I was, um, a friend of mine's now in acquisitions at Mitchell Library and I've kept some of my stuff from the, um, the soap opera because in a way it's a slice of time, you know, and I've just been, because she said she'd like to have a look at it, so I've just been putting things in envelopes and whatever. And I was looking at some of the, um, some of the fan mail, you know, a lot of it's that sort of inconsequential silliness. But there, when I did, I did a, I had a storyline about cancer, and that did go on for a little time, and I did get quite a lot of people who really, I mean, the other thing about connecting was probably not too bad a thing to, um, if they've got no one else to talk to, I think I was the kind of fourth wall, you know, and I got quite a bit of correspondence about that. But, I mean, one of the things that used to disturb me was that I'd get um, correspondence from people who are obviously in domestic violence situations and all of that and really asking for help and you didn't quite know. I mean, this is because of you're seen as a um, an accessible public figure who can maybe solve things, you know. So, I mean, I'm not saying that that was satisfying, but sometimes when you had a storyline that was about something, and that's what I was hoping with the, the gambling one, that it might continue for a while so that uh, that it, it sort of registered some sort of journey rather than all being dispensed with, you know, over a week or after a week or so. Mm. And that was my conversation with the delightful Lynn Collingwood, still contributing great stories to enthusiastic audiences. Thanks for making us a part of your podcast listening. A new episode of The Stages podcast is released every Thursday. And occasionally there's a bonus episode dropped in just for good measure. I know that many of you have been recommending the podcast to colleagues and friends, and uh, thanks very much for that. I, um, I very much appreciate it. 
You couldn't go one more step further, though, could you? Um, It would be just spectacular if you could take a moment to rate the podcast and leave a short review. Now, I haven't made this request for quite a while, so uh, let's hope it jogs your memories. You can do this through the podcast iTunes app where you accessed this episode, hopefully, unless you did it through Spotify or Wooshka or another platform, of course. Um, It'll help to get the series promoted and received. So until next time, I'm Peter Ayers and you've been listening to episode 116 of the Stages podcast, the podcast that converses with creatives. Music